You're listening to Country Life with Keith Fahey on Galway Bay FM. So on tonight's show we have Nevin Maguire on how to cook your Christmas turkey, Darren McCullough from Ear to the Ground discussing the upcoming show and events, uh, Liam Rabbit from the Turlockmore Hurling Club and Tommy the Vet to discuss animal health. So first up on Country Life this evening, we're delighted to have Tommy Heffernan, or uh, as a lot of people may know him as Tommy the Vet. Um, so Tommy, you're very welcome uh, onto Country Life. You might tell our listeners a bit about yourself, maybe where you started, maybe what college uh, or what course you did and what you've done since you graduated. Yeah, delighted to be on. Um, t- my name's Tommy Heffernan. I'm originally a Kerry man. I went to study veterinary in UCD, which is a long time ago, nearly 20 odd years ago now. And um, I qualified in 2002 when I ended up in Wicklow. Uh, following love and I never left it then after that and I was in practice for 16 years there in general practice that I ran it for that practice for 12 years and I suppose four years ago I actually left general practice doing consultancy work and uh, spent a bit of time in the farmer's journal and uh, I did a bit of travelling with a no-field scholarship so a very eventful uh, career and I, I suppose I'm doing a lot of consultancy work now primarily with a company called Precision Microbes actually an Irish agri startup so that's what I spend a lot of my time at the moment very good, very good. And what services do you offer? Um, you have the, TommyTheVet.ie is the website for farm animal advice and consultancy. So I suppose what kind of companies, is it companies you're dealing with or education or what What services yeah. do you offer yourself, Tommy? Yeah, so I, I was I was going out on farm doing, I do, do a lot, still do a lot of training. So farmer training, I do, I'm very lucky to do a bit of vet training as well in Ireland, the UK, so training vets. Um, I would have, I suppose, done a lot of trial work for companies and uh, looking at maybe new products and and uh, bringing them to market and stuff like that. So I, I've done a varied, a, a various skill set, um, um, uh, I suppose, to, in the marketplace. So yeah, but I I, I I I suppose I love education. I like that piece. I've discovered when I was in in vet practice, I started writing a few articles for the local paper, and there were two things. I actually liked the education piece, but I found I was learning myself as well. So um, there was double value there. So I kind of got addicted to that education piece and uh, kind of been looking at it ever since. Very good, very good. Um, and I suppose, you know, this time of the year, obviously, um, Tommy, you know, an awful lot of cattle are being housed at the minute or they're probably in for the, a couple of weeks in a lot of places. Uh, pneumonia, maybe with the, the fluctuating temperatures, obviously it's a lot colder now, uh, could be an issue uh, with temperatures. I know, you know, a lot of farmers may have vaccination programmes or that in place, but I suppose in terms of now, how can farmers reduce the risk of pneumonia at this stage in sheds, Tommy? Yeah, well, I suppose it's a very cold day today. So the first thing I'd always say is a bit of practical advice is keep an eye on those water troughs because that's a big one. We often forget about frozen water troughs. So a practical tip for anyone going out to the sheds this evening uh, to check those frozen pipes and make sure water is flowing into sheds. From a pneumonia perspective, I suppose, we're, we're all sort of experts on, on respiratory viruses from, from the pandemic. But the, the messages are, are sort of the same. You know, fresh air, space, vaccinations play a role when they're administered at the correct time. Um, but one of the challenges I would see with sheds would be sort of air movement in them is really, really important. Um, particularly, I suppose, with adult cattle. It's different with calves now because they're, they're more prone to the cold. But adult cattle are pretty hardy when it comes to the cold. So having good airflow through sheds is really important because fresh air does two things. It reduces down, I suppose, drying. It, it, it dries out sheds and, and reduces pathogens. But it also has a thing in it called ozone that actually kills a lot of pathogens in the air. So having air movement around cattle is important. And the other thing I would say with pneumonia, a practical tip is, is not stocking today. Not having sheds and pens overstock with animals because that creates a lot of pressure. 
And at the back of all our diseases, infectious diseases, stress is a huge one. So anything that puts stress on animals through poor feeding or anything like that or parasites compounds the issue and really lowers immunity. And that's a lot of these viruses and bacteria in to cause the effects that we call pneumonia. Okay, um, interesting. Um, and just in terms of lice then, I suppose, lice, you know, is also an issue this time of the year with, you know, cattle going into the shed, moisture, uh, they have the live host and that as well. You know, farmers might hear barriers or gates rattling in sheds, you know, where animals are scratching. Uh, clipping, I suppose, is a great f- uh, pr- farming practice, you know, to, to keep the animals clean and dry and, you know, I suppose there's less moisture for the lice as well. What advice are you giving to farmers in relation to lice in terms of porons and maybe clipping cattle and that kind of thing? Yeah, the studies would say that clipping cattle uh, doesn't reduce the risk of lice, but I'm a huge fan of clipping cattle. It kind of makes sense, especially, again, from a, from a you know, a stock of her, if we're, if we're finishing cattle as well inside or trying to put condition on them, they're, they're producing a lot of heat. So just that maybe, you know, 24 inches on the back clip from the tail to the neck makes a huge difference, I think. And the lice travel up over the back. So if you're exposing them to, um, I suppose, clipping the hair, it helps. I think with, when it comes to topical solutions, you know, the timing of them is important. So when are you getting lice? It's probably from the mid-December on to January when the lice, lice cycle and they're increasing in sheds. So now is the time to be thinking about preventatives. There's a couple of options there. Uh, I won't mention any specifics, but look, I think porons work fine. Um, unfortunately, with mange, it's kind of slightly different because they get into the actual skin as lice are more topical. And we're seeing a bit more of that. And we need to be a little bit more, I suppose, differentiating between the two, whether it's lice or mange, because mange can be a little bit more difficult to treat. You can use injectables there as well. So it's a farm by farm basis. I suppose that's where I'd always, you know, if in, if in doubt, maybe talk to their own vet. And if they're not getting a response to maybe their current topical treatment, you know, consider mange as a differential there as well. Okay, and what are the two, I suppose, what are the main differences, you know, for some farmers that might be maybe wanting to learn more on lice? What's the difference between your biting, your suckling lice, your mange or that? And I suppose, you know, how can farmers physically see the difference between the both? Yeah, look, it's a good question and it can be kind of hard sometimes uh, to look at an animal and say that's mange or that's lice. Typically, uh, some of your lice will be will affect the neck and the back. Sometimes some of the sarcopsis mange will be more on the on the tail and the back end. I think the, ver- the, the, the veracity of the scratching can be a little bit more with mange, but if you have a heavy lice infestation, sometimes, and what, we, what I would have done in practice was actually taking some scrapes or skin scrapes and actually looked at them under a microscope to see what we were dealing with. Um, my experience with mange certainly was the poor response to the topical treatment. And we saw, unfortunately, like most of these parasites, a bit of resistance probably as well. Uh, and that had been very much my own opinion from what I've seen. Um, I suppose it's, it's you know, what you're t- traditionally doing, making sure that it's maybe uh, it's covering either the lice or the mange. And if you're not getting a response, a little bit more investigation is required uh, too, you know. Yeah, and just, I suppose, following on from pneumonia, lice, obviously, uh, worms is probably one of the main issues uh, with, with, with cattle going into sheds and that coming in off grass. Uh, you know, have you looked at much faecal egg samples recently or what results are you finding with the faecal egg sample results? We've seen there a lot of maybe vets throughout the country could be involved in the, there's an AHI programme there, a, a few of the farmers I'd be dealing with in, in Chagas, you know, signed up for this where they get the, the faecal egg sample and they go through the report with their vet. But as you mentioned there, um, resistance is a major issue on Irish farms but just to go back to the worms there uh, Tommy you know uh, I suppose the importance maybe of taking a good faecal egg sample and reading into the results as well is obviously vital. Yeah so faecal egg sample is a tool um, as I would say and one 
like if you have 20 cattle in a shed and you're taking one sample, I mean, it's not a representative sample. So you're trying to get as much value as you can from maybe what we call a pool sample where you're taking a number of cattle dung samples and uh, you're, you're, you're basically pooling them together, um, trying to get fresh dung. So like if it was out in the field, I tell people, and this is my own way of doing it, get, you know, getting a teaspoon and going around and taking an even amount of fresh feces from cattle if you're moving them, just getting that fresh feces. Same applies in a shed. You need to be careful when you're trying to take samples in sheds and cattle are in there. But um, as many samples as you can, pooling them together, getting them off quickly. And they're a tool to tell us, because uh, we're, we're, we're looking at eggs and that's an account of adult worms. So they're an indication along with, you know, performance and looking at the animals and the history as well. And of course, um, not just worms at this time of year, rumen fluke and liver fluke are in the mixture as well. And housing is a great kind of point that we can kind of clean animals up between seasons. So, and using an appropriate antelmentic and one that's going to work. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more maybe uh, animals been treated, not really responding. You're going to the repeat fecal egg counts and you're seeing those numbers are still high. So the resistance is a challenge. So, Every farm would be slightly different. I know it's kind of a, a cop-out answer for me, but it does require that farm-by-farm farm, uh, investigation and understanding and that local knowledge as well as history of the farm to see what are the cha- challenges. And never forget to look at like look at the stock performance. If we've done a dose and we're not seeing a response, we've got to ask the question why. Okay, very interesting. And you also mentioned earlier that you're, do, you're doing some work with preci- precision microbes, uh, Tommy. I suppose, can you tell us what are precision microbes and how do they work? Well, Precision Microbes is a Dublin-based company. Uh, we launched into the market in February 21. I was doing the trials for them on calves. We're, uh, I suppose we're, we're first to market with a very unique concept, the liquid pro and postbiotic. So we're targeting gut health. We have different blends across species. And um, when you think of the, the gut microbiome in all species in humans now, it's very, very topical and popular because we we're now realizing that all these beneficial microbes inside in ourselves and animals are like in other organs. They're involved in digestive health. They're involved in immunity. 70% of the calf's immunity is in, in its gut. And they compete with harmful pathogens to provide protection. So with probiotics, traditionally what we're trying to do is we're trying to mimic what those beneficial bacteria are doing and supporting gut health. Uh, so what Precision Microbes have developed is a unique liquid pro and postbiotic. And the postbiotic element is really important. That's the, that's the IP or the, the, the new development. It's actually... The postbiotics are what these good bacteria produce. So these live liquids going into calves, supporting gut health, and we've, I suppose, we've different blends now, and they've been very successful for one reason only, uh, and that's because they deliver real results on farm. Um, and we're actually launching a new lamb product this spring as well. So it's, it's very, very exciting. Very good. Tommy the Vet, uh, you can be found on tommythevet.ie, a farm animal and advice and consultancy firm. Thanks very much for coming on Country Life. So next up on Country Life, we're delighted to have um, top chef Nevin Maguire with us. Um, So Nevin is um, based in the Black Lion restaurant and then also runs the Nevin Maguire Cookery School. And you've been operating now for 33 years and a lot of our listeners will be familiar with looking at or seeing you on the TV and RTE and you have your piece in the Farmer's Journal as well or the National Ploughing. So a a very well-known figure. So Nevin, we're uh, delighted to have you on Country Life. I suppose, firstly, Nevin, maybe where did you first get your love for cooking and food? Well, first of all, uh, Keith, lovely to be on your show and thank you and hello and a happy Christmas to you and all your listeners. I got my love of food from probably the age of 12 from my mother. My mother, Vera, Vera was a great cook and my dad, so there's nine in the family. Uh, like They actually opened the business 33 years ago, so we've been open since then. I've been cooking since then with with uh with started off with my mom and now myself and my wife run it so we're very very lucky we have 60 staff employed and uh we are still a family-run business but it's 
it's so nice to be back to a bit of normality. You know, COVID changed everything because we do one sitting now. We started closing on a Sunday, so we closed Sunday and Monday, and then, you know, our staff can have a weekend day off. So it's just been, thank God it's been a great year. So thankfully, we're very grateful for that. Very good. And just a question there, uh, Nevin, you know, how important is it, you know, to obviously we're a farming programme here, we're based in Galway, so we've a lot of farmers. Uh, you know, how important is it for you um, and your family run business to source local food and produce? It's always, I mean, even from when I was a very young chef, it's what my mum taught me. And I suppose nowadays it's never been better and more, shall we say, more and more people are supporting, want to buy local, want to buy Irish. And I think if you're buying from your local butcher, local community, local farmers, it's a win-win situation. It's like me, like we have a local duck producer a mile up the road, you know, from the restaurant. We've been using his duck for 33 years, so we're very, very lucky and grateful. And good food is all about consistency and building a trust we have the best food in the world, from our dairy to our to to our to our meat. You know, we have such great, great taste in food, and that's and it's amazing. Like when I go travelling, the amount of people say how good the quality of food is in Ireland. It's got better. It's always been good, but it's got better recognised, which is fantastic to see. Very good. And you know, Christmas is upon us, and I suppose you've probably been asked this question a thousand times. But in relation, you know, to maybe starters or that, what are you seeming to focus on this weather yourself, or what advice are you giving yeah. to to our listeners? Well, I suppose for, for Christmas, for your listeners, don't overcomplicate it. Now, I'm cooking for a big number this year because my youngest brother, he's home from Australia, all my family. So I'm going to have about 35 people, Keith, uh, coming to my to my house Christmas very Day. Good, very but I'm delegating. I'm going to get my some my twins who are 10, Connor, to see, and my wife, we're all going to get prepped and organised at uh, Christmas Eve. So I'm going to be doing some lovely local um Goat goose, which will just be slowly roasted with a honey and clove sauce. So I'll do that Christmas Eve. And then a recipe for turkey. I use some beautiful, both be a quality assured Irish turkey breast. And what I do is I marinate it in buttermilk, a little bit of garlic, some rosemary, sliced orange, marinate it for two days, lift it out of the buttermilk, and then put lots of lovely Irish butter with some lemon and orange zest and some smoked bacon over it. And I'll roast that off and just slice that. And what the what the buttermilk does, key, it keeps it really, really moist and succulent. Then for a starter, I'll do a very, very simple, it's just like a chestnut and mushroom soup. So I'll have that made a few days ahead, which is lovely. So some chestnuts, which you'll get in any vegetable shop, supermarket, some uh, mushrooms, a little bit of smoked bacon, some stock. There's no flour in this, so it's a lovely light soup, so it is. And then it's finished with some cream and a little bit of chopped thyme. And it's a it's a, it's a recipe that my mother would have shown me how to make many, many years ago. And then my a lot of my sisters and family love goat's cheese. I'm going to be using some nice, Local goat cheese to me here, Carleggie cheese, which is a local cheese produced in Cavan. So I'm going to flour egg a breadcrumb that, like like a baked camembert or brie. I'm going to bake that off in the oven and serve it with sweet and sour cranberries. So that's what's on the menu so far. And just in relation to the goose there you mentioned, uh, you know, what's is there much of a difference, we'll say, cooking a goose in, in, in relation to a turkey or what differences uh, yeah. do you see there, um, Nevin? I mean, Aki, what I always say to, to and for your listeners is treat the turkey like a large chicken. It just takes longer to cook and you want it really moist and succulent. So lots of lovely butter. Keep spooning all the juices uh, over it every 25 minutes, 30 minutes and give it 20 minutes per plus 20 minutes per pound. That's the way you work it. With the goose, I'll slow roast it for about four hours at about maybe 130, 140. And I won't cover it, but I'll put orange into the centre. I'll put onion, a bit of garlic because it's a very fatty meat. It's a rich meat. So I want to render and extract all that 
lovely fat. And then what I do is just drain that off and keep that for your roast potatoes. So, you know, we're from Cavan. We don't like to waste anything, but that beautiful fat that comes out of the goose is so beautiful. So it is. So I'll slow roast that and then I'll just take it off the, the, the bone and then just literally crisp it up Christmas Day. So I'll be doing that Christmas Eve. So we'll low and slow. But, you know, um, goose like used to be the meat of choice in Ireland years ago. Now it is an expensive meat, but it's absolutely delicious. One of my favourites. And a question for my own mother, I'd be killed if I didn't ask this one. Uh, she's wondering, uh, uh, she, she said she doesn't get advice from Nevin McGuire that often, so she said you make, make the best of it. Uh, how long should she give uh, a turkey crown for six people? How long and what temperature, roughly? Well, I would start it off in a nice high temperature, about 190, and then put it onto a tray with some sliced onion, a little bit of garlic, if you like garlic, uh, maybe some whole carrots. Red onions works really well in that and some herbs and water. So that's going to create the juices for your gravy. And um, if it's a crown uh, with the skin on, obviously, I would put some lovely butter over that, smoked bacon, a little bit of salt and pepper. Give that 20 minutes per pound. And you'll be talking about probably two, two, probably two and a half hours. We'll cook that until it's the proper cooked right through and that it's soft and, and moist and succulent. I'd cover it for the first hour. So I would keep with some with some tin foil. And then I'd remove the tin folds. You get a lovely golden brown colour. That's what gives it the flavour. Very good. And just in relation to a few desserts there, Nevin, what advice would you be giving to our listeners? Well, I have my Christmas puddings made because it's my Auntie Maureen's uh, recipe. And she, Auntie Maureen, was a home economics teacher and she lives in Ballymahan. So it's her recipe. So we have them already made. But my family like mulled fruit trifle. So what I do is I get a packet of lovely uh, kind of frozen forest fruits and I literally poach that in a little bit of port, cinnamon, touch of sugar. So I've that already uh, done about a few days ahead. A little bit of Madeira sponge on top and then some homemade custard, whipped cream and some toasted flaked almonds. And then another dessert I'll do because I'll have lots of kids this year is baked Alaska. So my mother used to do it. Chocolate sponge, uh, vanilla ice cream and then another layer of chocolate sponge and meringue on the outside. So delicious. Baked off. Yum. I'm, I'm getting hungry even thinking about it, Nevin. I know you are. <laughs> but um, just in relation, I suppose, you know, a lot of Christmases we see, you know, a lot of leftovers maybe or a lot of maybe to minimise waste or that, you know, you mentioned the goose and the turkey or that, you know, is there, you see, we see Stevens's day, you know, there might be stuff left over or that. Is there any way of sp- sprucing it up or anything you'd be, any advice you'd be given there? Well, one thing that I love to do is to do a lovely kind of a, a pie out of the turkey and ham. So cook off some leeks, some red onion, a little bit of garlic. So you can put mushrooms into it if you like. And then you make up a white sauce. So you put in some cream, flour, a little bit of milk. And, and then what I do is stir in your cooked meat, which is left over. Let that go completely cold. Then onto a kind of a, an oven-proof dish. Um, put pastry on top, a little bit of uh, egg wash, and then into the oven. And that's delicious, Keith, because you can have all that sauce made. So all you're doing is putting your leftover turkey and ham into it. And with the leeks and the mushrooms, it's gorgeous. Even frozen peas or sweet corn, the kids will love it. So that's one recipe. Or else you could do a simple curry. A curry with lovely uh, chickpeas and maybe some uh, sweet potato. Or you could use some peppers or butternut squash. Make that up with some nice curry powder. A little bit of mango chutney, coconut milk ginger and garlic and then what you do is put in some tomatoes a can of tomatoes and then put in your just warm up your leftover turkey which is gorgeous in the curry Very good Nevin Maguire uh, it was a pleasure to have you on Country Life thanks very much for your time Can I thank you and listen just wish you and all your listeners 
a very happy and peaceful Christmas. And remember, for all your listeners, if you're make sure you're buying local, buying Irish, and that we're supporting a great farming community. So next up, we have a famous guest on Turlock Moore, GA sensation, uh, Liam, also better known as a uh, big guy around Turlock Moore. You're very welcome on to Country Life. Um, as I said, Thanks a, fa- a, fa- much, a famous I think man. I'm more famous. <laughs> more famous for stuff off the pitch than on the pitch but anyway <laughs> whatever works um, so big guy uh, you know I was looking at the tractor run and I was wondering you know you, you are selling D's in an aisle was this your idea uh, to set up a tractor run so that you'd be able to sell more diesel or was it, how did it come about with all with all the the snow and frost the last 10 days or so um, there, there isn't much green, green diesel being, uh, being sold so I said uh, this is one way to get them going up back on the road again so <laughs> but the weather hopefully is going to change at the weekend and uh, we're planning to get going around 12 o'clock uh, 12.30 on Sunday morning from the community centre in Turlock okay. so uh it's uh, there's going to be a bit of everything. It's not you know I suppose everyone here a hurling club or a GA club they think you know we have to play hurling we have to play whatever GA but it's uh, more kind of a community centre as you know it's a playground credit union everything so there's more of a, a community effort more so than even a GA effort uh, on Sunday and uh, hoping to get stuff up and going for 2023. Very good. And how can people find out more about the run? Well, it's um, everything's up on our Facebook and Instagram and all that. And um, for anyone that's listening, this was about the, the route. We'll, we'll, the registration started at 11 o'clock uh, at the centre in Turlock Moor and we're leaving around 12.30. And we we'll leave from there over to Turlock Moor through uh, Lacka, Turlock Moor, up to Anna Cross. And then we'll go down by Ryan Delorock to Cusson Cross and over to Craig Moore and down Craig Moore then and back to the centre which should take around 35 minutes so we're hoping to get as many tractors trucks bikes Anthem whatever Anthem anyone wants to go bring for a spin for 35 minutes are more than welcome to come and join us on Sunday Very good and I suppose Liam what is the money being raised for? Well the main uh, we, well, we have big plans in Turlock Moore well, at, at the moment and hopefully by the time this the tractor run starts on Sunday, the money will be gone over that we've bought a good bit of land there uh, around the centre and developing that and Sunday itself is more so towards trying to develop a gym for the players. I, I, they were laughing, I said everything from under six up to 40-year-old 40 40-year-old 40 men playing hurling but uh, I don't know about the 40-year-olds but there shouldn't be too many under sixes in the gym but uh, it's uh, for the future really and just trying to you know develop develop all the facilities we have and, and hand them on in a, in a better way than we got them and you know I, and if that comes with teams or facilities and pitches and everything and you know there's big plans a big development plan for the next four or five years so this is the start this is the start of it Yeah we see a lot of you know underage teams we see you know there's four senior adult hurling teams the Camogie um, you know the club is developing year on year. Uh, thankfully, um, even underage there, there's two or three teams in, in certain uh, categories in, in underage. So it's it's great yeah, to see so many. Turlock Moor is a big, 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 big parish now. Even under six is there with forty two young lads, and then up to thirty lads talking out for the C ones who won the county final this year. You know what I mean? The other at the under other end of the scale. So it is it is all about community. You know, there's a playground there, Credit Union, and the whole lot, and. It, there'll be from eleven o'clock. There'll be a craft fair in the centre, and there'll be Santy for the kids around twelve. And we have uh, a couple of big raffles for both in the hall and for the people that uh, bring along a vehicle to pay into the into the tractor run. So there's everything from a ton of fertilizer, thirty square bales, 
and in the hall there's a uh, TVs, there's a uh, do uh, do looks. The paint have uh, will give us a room, paint a room for you, everything, everything you need to be there for oil painting the whole lot. Very good, very good. Yeah, we see. Uh, maybe even the odd uh, home heat night voucher. Ah, yeah, I knew you couldn't go without giving a plug in. <laughs> very good, Liam. We seen I was at the Ardrahan uh, PJ Memorial. Um, the PG O'Mahony Tractor Memorial Run uh, on, on Sunday there in Adran and they had a massive day out as well. So, look, it's a great way of getting um, the community together to, you know, to fundraise and that. So, so give us the details again there, um, Liam. Yeah, so it'll be, so it'll be, registration will be starting from 11 o'clock and we'll be hoping to get going by 12.30. And there's every, like, there is also Santee in the hall, there's a craft fair, there's 14 or 15 different stands, there's a monster raffle, there's a wheel of fortune. There's everything you need will be there, so just hoping that people turn up, you know, and support support local, and uh, anyone that's coming with tractors and stuff, the more lights the better, you know. It is Christmas, so it's the run into Christmas, so it'll be uh, it'll be a great day out. Very good. So the Turlockmore uh, GA Club for the Turlockmore uh, Centre on Sunday at eleven o'clock, a tractor run with Santa and raffle and spot prizes as well. So, Lily yeah. Rabbit, thanks very much for coming on Country Life. Thanks, Martin. And just before we jump, we'll just say we we'll also have on sale that day. We're doing a big. Um, concert in the Clayton Hotel on the 11th of February uh, we're having the Tumbling Paddies they'll probably be more your generation now than my generation but uh, they're, they're playing uh, at, at the 11th of February and the tickets will touch yours and they'll be go on sale general sale as well in the centre on Sunday morning so I think there's a big demand for them so come and get them while they're still available because I think they're nearly two thirds of them gone already so you know it's uh, should be a great night also. So next up on Country Life, we're delighted to have presenter of Ears to the Ground on, um, Dara McCullough. Dara, you're very welcome on to um, Country Life. So, you know, most people know you maybe as the presenter of the Ears to the Ground, but you also have a lot of other areas in which you work uh, are involved in in the agri-sector. So you might give us a bit of um, um, a ro- a, an explanation into maybe the different areas you're covering. You're also involved in a farm partnership as also, uh, Dara. Yeah, so 95% of my waking hours are spent at home on the farm in Eastmead and Gormson, Eastmead. Um, lucky to have grown up in a farm and uh, my both my dad and my granddad were always fairly innovative farmers. You know, my dad would have developed one of the biggest onion growing operations uh, in Ireland and my granddad would have developed a, a pedigree Frisian herd. Um, and so when I came along, then uh, I was I have spent the last 20 years trying to put my stamp on the operation. So what it has evolved into, we've got into partnership with our neighbours on the dairy herd. So that's we've a, a small slice of a large 600 cow dairy herd there. Um, and it's about, there's over 100 acres of the home farm involved in that. It's a spring calving herd, um, totally focused on... Uh, a kind of a New Zealand style operation of low cost uh, milk output and of course dairy farmers all over the country have had a good year in general although the cost has gone up uh, milk price has been uh, something to to save or <laughs> if I can put it that way um, so uh, that's the dairy side. My main enterprise that I concentrate myself on the farm and that I've developed is the flower enterprise. So we grow 100 acres of uh, cut flowers. That's mainly outdoor, 90 acres of daffodils. That produces about 12 million stems of daffodil flowers every year. Uh, we'll be starting to pick them. I was only out there on the tractor today spraying um 
So when you're growing flowers, you kind of do things at oddball times of the year. So I'm trying to get in uh, my last chance to spray off any possible weeds coming up through the daffodils before the daffodils uh, start tearing along now over the next couple of weeks. And we'll be actually picking them in as little as four weeks' time. And they are sold in some Irish shops, mainly exported uh, to Europe. Um, So... That's a little bit different. And then we have polytunnels that we grow other softer flowers. And we have sunflowers and lily and gladiola. And then we have a farm shop um, that specializes in flowers. And at this time of the year, we sell Christmas trees that we grow on the farm as well and wreaths that we make up. So a lot of different elements uh, going on at different times of the year. Um, oh, Like I suppose any farmer, we always seem to be busy. Oh, very good, very good. So obviously a lot going on there, different diversification at its uh, finest. So uh, fair play there. And just in relation to here to the ground there, it's in its 30th season um, and obviously it's on RTE on Thursday evenings at 7 o'clock. You know, it's a household name, farming programme. It's great. Uh, it gives a great topic and country life and uh, agri-related issues, I suppose. What's on uh, this week or what's coming up this week, Dara? One of the probably for my money one of the most interesting stories I've done this year is coming up this Thursday evening it's all about the willow uh, growing industry and you know willow growing uh, has got a lot of bad press uh, amongst farmers and in the farming uh, publications over the last couple of months uh, largely because you know farmers all over the country got into it maybe 10 12, 15 years ago when it was being promoted and it was being promoted by, you know, all the heavyweights, you know, Chagask and various advisors and other private consortiums. And and of course, the government were encouraging farmers to get involved in renewable energy and Willow was seen as one of the tickets into the renewable sector. So for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically the idea that you grow a fast-growing biomass product um, that you would go in and cut every couple of years, uh, pulverize into chips or mulch, and send it off into some uh, huge big furnace or boiler, or indeed dry out and sell as dry chips to private and residential uh, consumers. And, you know, at the same time, Willow has been promoted. Miscanthus was another one that um, some may ruefully remember um, was another concept out there. And both of them have failed, and fairly spectacularly, in the sense that um, the private sector did not put their arms around uh, biomass as a fuel source. And it's it would make you cry uh, when you delve into this subject Keith because you know it's not that it doesn't work uh, biomass is a, a great source of heat energy um, we can't generate heat energy from things like wind and solar that efficiently uh, we don't have enough um, anaerobic digesters to produce uh, renewable gas so using biomass material from either forestry or fast growing crops like willow is a good idea to produce a, a renewable heat energy source. Um, it, it is cheaper than oil, far, far cheaper than oil and gas at current rates, but generally is cheaper than oil and gas, even when prices are what we'd call normal levels. And of course, it is a renewable source of energy. You know, whatever nutrients you're putting in, whatever uh, uh yeah, input you're putting into the crop um, and that are and subsequently released, the gases released by burning biomass are, are subsequently sucked up by the, the 
the crop is coming afterwards. So, you know, the crop is sucking in uh, carbon to grow and releasing it then when it's, when it's burned. So it is the perfect, uh, one of the perfect answers to Ireland's future energy needs. So why has it failed? It failed, in my opinion, largely because of a failed government policy. In other words, the government were so terrified when the cash for ash scandal broke in Northern Ireland that they basically sat on their hands and dithered about getting our own scheme uh, off the ground. And in the meantime, uh, the whole show moved on. So farmers who had got uh, public money, state grant aid, to put in crops like Miscanthus and Willow were left sitting on their hands looking at this crop with no uh, viable outlet to go. Now, uh, of course, I'm giving you the simplified version. There is one outlet that was and has been and will continue to be an outlet for uh, biomass crops, and that's um, the Bordnemona plant in Eden Dairy. However, it's just one plant and they pay a rock-bottom price for the material. So if you happen to be growing biomass in Galway or Limerick or somewhere that's basically more than 50 kilometres away from Eden Dairy, the transport cost of getting that biomass, because it's a bulky material, of getting it to the plant completely nullify any of the payments that you would get. And, you know, they're paying about 50 quid a tonne. So um, it's difficult. Basically, you would have got more money for renting out your land, doing diddly squat and renting your land to a neighbouring farmer than you would have got for taking a punt and planting this um, this crop like willow. So a whole, thousands of farmers or hundreds of farmers have pulled out thousands of acres of willow. Uh, what we've looked into this week on the show is we talked to one farmer who's pulling his crop out, um, John Keeley in, in uh, Dunderry in County Mead. Uh, he had planted up nine acres on good ground. And, you know, he was actually a consultant for the, the Farrelly brothers who were big promoters and contractors. They planted thousands of acres of this. So, so he knew what he was doing. And yet even he wasn't able to make sense out of this crop. However, there is a, 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 a tale to this story, uh, and that is that uh, you go 40 miles up the road to Kells, and there is a brand new 50 million euro biomass plant that is sucking in thousands of acres of willow uh, for the willow warm briquettes that it's churning out by the boatload on a daily basis. They're, they're so busy that they're moving to a 24-7 shift. The plant never stops. And of course, they've got a kind of a captive market now because, you know, peat briquettes, Bordenamona's peat briquettes are effectively leaving the market. You can still get them in the shops, but that's just the, the Bordenamona running down the stocks. They're not making them anymore. It's illegal for Bordemona. They've exited that stage completely. And so, you know, a lot of people are dependent on these briquette-type uh, products for their little log fires or stoves or whatever they have in their living rooms uh, in their homes. And so this 50 million plant, um, privately owned, is in the right place. And, of course, they are planning to plant uh, 500 to 1,000 acres a year, every year, for the next 10 years of willow. And you might say, well, how is it making sense for these guys to do it if it isn't making sense for all the other farmers around the country? Which is an excellent question. I suppose if you're the end user and you also control the supply, it's a bit like the meat factories. Um, they can also make sense out of filling feedlots 
uh, with cattle when um, thousands of farmers can't because, of course, the factories can control what they're going to pay themselves. Uh, I suppose the moral of the story, the, uh, the government needs to get serious. We hear them time and time again uh, promoting the fact that there's huge opportunities for farmers to get involved in renewable energy. If the government don't have a coherent policy from start to finish, the day the farmer gets involved, it's going to fail and fail time after time. Yeah, you know, and sustainability is such a, a buzzword at the moment as well. You know, um, it's obviously vitally important, you know, for all these renewable energies, um, as you mentioned there. And just to, to mention a little bit on, you know, you covered the you covered the bird flu um, uh, disease, we'll say last week, you're out to a turkey grower there. And just maybe a few points on, you know, how dangerous this could be, you know, if the, the correct, we'll say, protocols and safety mechanisms aren't being in place and being utilised, you know, to minimise the spread and... Um, and reduce this um, bird flu from spreading? Yeah, I suppose I'm like a lot of rural dwellers. I have five <laughs> chickens um, uh, on the farm here, and basically the, I use them as little composters. All the scraps from the kitchen uh, goes out to them, and um, they give me a few eggs. They're not going to be many eggs at this time of the year, uh, but during the summer they uh, lay a few eggs, and we're very grateful for them. And of course, the thing, uh, you know, if you have a backyard poultry producer t- tends not to be something that gets a lot of focus in uh, the day-to-day lives of ordinary folk and farmers and whoever else because we're busy, yeah? But, of course, people need to be aware that those type of birds should be kept in at all times at the moment because we are at the peak season, not just for human flu, um, but also avian flu. And avian flu has been with us... It, it, We've had avian flu in the world for over 20 years at this stage, hard to believe, but it's only really got a hold in Ireland in the, during the winter time for the last three winters. And the, the Department of Agriculture have issued these directives to all poultry owners to house their flocks at this time of the year, which of course raises a kind of a, a significant and interesting question that I don't have the answer to, but, you know, If uh, bird flu is effectively endemic in uh, Europe at this stage, how are we going to continue to produce credible free-range poultry? Um, You know, we produced free-range turkeys on this farm here for many years, and uh, the turkeys would normally be out grazing uh, in the field at this time of the year, right up until, well, maybe this week they'd be heading off to be slaughtered at the local plant. And, you know, the fact that they were free range was the only kind of uh, unique selling point that I had for my turkeys over, we'll say, the the mass-produced housed birds that can be sold cheap as chips in the supermarket. So, you know, if we're getting directives from the Department of Agriculture every year, to house our free-range birds, how are, are you know niche small uh, producers going to continue to be able to credibly offer the public a free-range product? That's a question I don't have the answer to because bird flu is with us. Anyone who's been out walking over the the summer months will have noticed fairly disturbing scenes on you know the beaches where you would have seen you know scores of gannets. I know here on the Mead Coast and Bettystown, Laytown, Gorison beaches, it was quite shocking the number of seabirds that littered the coastline at various times. And we've got this almost perfect storm where, you know, one of uh, the areas of Ireland which is most famous for its inland waterways and lakes 
uh, is uh, the border BMW area of, of Cavanaugh Monaghan. And of course, Cavanaugh Monaghan is also the home to over 70% of our entire poultry, national poultry output. So you've got this huge concentration of poultry flocks up there, along with a concentration of waterways, which is the natural habitat for these uh, wild birds. So, uh, you know, poultry producers up there, they're still in uh, the midst of a lockdown period uh, within 10 kilometres of those two flocks where we did have two positives in bird flu there uh, about four weeks ago now. So, you know, it was 30 days after the last positive test. They may actually be out of their lockdown period now. But, you know, for poultry owners up in those uh, flocks, they are in dread every morning when they get up, go down to the houses um, and uh, check on the birds because if they go in there and they know even before they've opened the door, if, if those houses are quiet, if they don't hear the usual chirp, the chorus of chirping that they would normally hear from those houses, that there's a problem. It's one of the first signs that poultry have uh, the bird flu is they become quiet, they go off, basically go off form. They go off their feed, go off their water, they quieten down, they become lethargic. And within literally days, in the case of turkeys, uh, those birds um, end up dying because of bird flu. And, you know, we've seen in the UK, not too far away, in Norfolk area and Lincolnshire, where, again, there's a concentration of poultry flocks, that over half of all the free-range turkey flocks over there have been culled or died because of bird flu uh, so far this year. So um, they're pretty extraordinary numbers. Ireland, by contrast, has got off very light. And I suppose it's worth saying, Keith, that for consumers that are listening to this um, programme, kind of wondering, cheapers, I wonder if I should even bother getting a turkey this year um, if uh, there's a, a risk of bird flu from it. There is no risk of getting bird flu for humans from cooked turkey um, or any poultry product uh, for that matter. So the, the key recommendation from the Department of Agriculture is make sure that you uh, cook your all your poultry as you would always uh, or should always do, uh, cook it thoroughly. Um, but, you know, that any uh, birds that have uh, been tested positive with bird flu do not enter the f- uh, food chain, so they're immediately culled. And even any birds within that whole zone, whether they've got the uh, flu or not, are culled out of the uh, situation as well. So there should be no concern with the public. I know for, uh, from my point of view, anyway, the turkey will be still taking centre stage on the Christmas uh uh, dinner table this uh, 25th of December. So thanks very much Dara for coming on the show and thanks to all our speakers for tonight. Um, if anyone has any queries or questions please don't hesitate to contact us at countrylife at gallerbayfm.ie and next up is Melodies with Valerie Hughes.